Well, good morning, Cartersville. Nice to see you. You guys look awesome. You smell good. Thank you for that. It's great to, great to see you. We've got a few Cartersvillians who might not smell quite as nice, just temporarily, because they are on their way back from Burkina Faso. They are in the, they text me from the Paris airport. We've got folks from both our east location and from here who've been in Burkina this week. They've given away almost nine tons of grain. They have um, built, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, they built a church among an unreached people group of people who've never heard the name of Jesus before. And um, let's see what else they do. Oh, they gave away three handicapped bikes in, in Burkina Faso, which is a little country in West Africa that we invest in. Malnutrition uh, has created kind of a rare disease to where people will go lame all of a sudden and they'll be forced to crawl on the ground. Well, one of our pastors there that we partner with, one of the Burkina Bay pastors, has developed a bike that people can do with their, with their hands. And so they got to give away three of those this week. So they've had a tremendous, I don't know what you did this week, but they've had a good week. Uh, we've had a great week with Surge and with ministry going on. What a great summer. It's a summer full of crazy love from Rush to Surge to things that are going on in missions and, and things I know you're doing in, in your own life. And so I'm just very grateful to be a part of this church and, and to be here with all of you guys this morning. If you've heard me talk before, um, you know that I'm a little different. And I've got a, a few things about me that I want to confess to you this morning before we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to continue this morning on our series about God's crazy love. And I've got a few crazy things that go kind of with what we're talking about this morning. So some true confessions, okay? I, I don't eat ice cream every night, um, but only nights before I go to sleep. And so the, um, I, I like my ice cream a particular way. I, you have to eat it when it's at its coldest, okay? I don't know if any of you can relate to this. I didn't ask for soup. I asked for ice cream. And so I have gone so far as to freeze the bowl ahead of time that the ice cream is going to be placed in, okay? I, I, I really, really like having it that way. Um, and another thing on my uh, Diet Coke drinking, when I'm, when I'm doing my heavy drinking, the, um, um, something is very important to me, Okay? It has to be fully carbonated. It has to be really fizzy. And let me tell you how odd. I, I see people nodding their heads at me. Yes, there's people wanting to shout and testify. This is good. The, um, I, listen, after about 10 minutes, it's flat. I'm not kidding, okay? I am very particular. And my coffee is the same way. It's, coffee was meant to be drunk hot, okay? I don't know about you iced coffee people. That, that, that's a little weird to me. I think it's a fad. It's going to go away. But, the, uh, but especially, especially... You know, if you order hot coffee, then why do you let it sit around and get lukewarm? It makes no sense to me. You have to have these things when they're at their piping best. I have given coffee back to Starbucks and told them it's not hot enough. Brewed coffee. I mean, it's, I haven't given it back to them and told them it's not strong enough. I've just said it's not hot enough. And so there are a few areas in my life where I absolutely, I, I insist on having them this way. If my wife were here, she would get up and testify. There are about 20 other things like this in my life. But it's just kind of, it, it's just a little bit of the way I am. And it's uh, a little strange. And it's a little bit, touches a little bit on what the Apostle Paul is going to instruct us on this morning. And I want you to know that if any of those things are in your life, we're going to look at Scripture and you're going to see that along with me, you're in sin. You're in deep sin. If you like your ice cream really cold, no, not exactly like that. But we're going to find out a little bit. We're going to be talking about what it means to love in a way that is selfless this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We have been 
reading every week from the ESV, and I thought I would do something a little different this morning. I wanted to look at chapter 13 and read it to you from a paraphrase called The Message, written by Eugene Peterson. Many of you have heard of it, and I love how this paraphrase of Scripture uh, speaks to us at at different points. Verse, uh, Verse 1 of chapter 13 says this, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have a faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. I love this one. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. And that last one's the one we're going to focus on today. 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 and 5 in the English Standard Version says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And the one that we're focusing on today It does not insist on its own way. Some of your translations say things like love does not seek its own or it is not self-seeking. One of the things that we've learned throughout this series is the Apostle Paul, he begins by giving us a couple things that, that love is. He says it's patient and kind. And then he goes into all these what love is not. And he seems to be communicating to us That, you know what, it's really easy. All of these things that love is not, these are the things that are easy for us to do. These are our natural inclinations. This is the way that most people naturally respond. We typically respond with with the things that he's saying love is not. But if we're going to practice God's crazy love, then we have to move from responding naturally, from being relaxed in how we practice love, and move into a place where we are responding supernaturally by really working and focusing to to practice and to give away God's crazy love. And the one that he's talking about today is our natural inclination to have a a kind of my way or the highway mentality when it comes to just life in general. He says, love does not insist on its own way. It is not, it is not, it is self-advancement improperly motivated is what he's saying. Love is not like this. Love does not try to get to the top no matter what. Love doesn't, love doesn't cast others aside. Love doesn't try to hurt others on the, on the way up the ladder. Listen, he's not talking about, it's not bad to set goals. It's not bad to want to get promoted. It's not bad to want to do your very, very best. But it's the idea of seeking your own happiness in an exclusive way, only caring about yourself. All the circumstances around you, all the people around you, if you're loving like this, are only there to serve your purposes and your own happiness. That's not the kind of love that God wants us to practice, but rather he wants us to practice crazy love that instead does this. It denies itself and puts others first. Crazy love denies itself and puts others first. It does not insist on its own way. Several years ago in our community, we had a a rash of marriage relationships blow up. And they all blew up around a certain group of women that had gotten together and decided that they weren't happy in their marriages. And they really, they, they believed with all their hearts 
that God wanted them to be happy. And they quoted it as if it were a Bible verse, which it's not. God wants me to be happy. It's not there. However, the scriptures tell us that if we follow the principles of God, we'll have the peace, the shalom of God in our lives. The the scriptures tell us that if we follow the principles of God, that our joy will be full, that there is contentment that can be there. The scriptures tell us that, that God has great plans for us. They're not plans to harm us, but plans to give us hope in a future. We, we know that God can be trusted, but these women had gotten so focused on the moments, even, even small moments of unhappiness, and they were absolutely determined that their life should be just popsicles and skipping down the road and everything should be great and they should just move from one happy event to the other. So in trying to convince themselves that this was actually how God wanted them to live and, and, and what he wanted for their lives, they began just sleeping around with guys other than their husbands. They were just, a, a rash of affairs began to break out from this group of women. They were sleeping with guys from work and guys from their neighborhood and they were, listen to this, they were absolutely convinced that God had no problem with what they were doing. They had gotten so wrapped up and wanting to have things their own way and believing that this was God's plan for their lives moment by moment that ultimately it led to such a self-deceit, a blindness like I have never seen. And it left husbands holding the bag and children and students confused and lost in their wake. Selfishness had blinded them so much. There was a gal at the East location a few years ago who came forward. My wife and I normally sit kind of over in this side and at the East location, there's a few more stairs and, and there's, a, there's the opportunity sometimes to come down and, and pray. Pastor Brian might say, if you want to come pray, you can come, come pray at the steps. And, and on this particular morning, I don't remember exactly what, what Brian had spoken on, but I can remember very vividly in my mind this, this real petite gal coming forward and, and kneeling at the stairs. And my wife would tell me this later, but she just felt this kind of extreme emotion, this kind of this push come over her that said, you need to go pray with this gal. And so this one lone girl had come, she's praying, and my wife now moves out and she, she goes to the front and, and just kind of whispers to her. She says, hey, can I, can I pray with you? Just taps her on the shoulder, can I pray with you? And, and, and they began to pray together. And, and afterwards, the, uh, the story began to unfold as they continued to, to just chat and and, and pray with one another. And, and this gal, her name was Alma. She has a, a little boy about the, the same age as, as my oldest son, and who's nine now. And, and she just said, I've been happily married. Um, my wife noticed things that, that I wouldn't have known. Uh, she said that, you know, for instance, the gal's shoes cost more than my car. And uh, she was just uh, very well put together and had, had had a very successful, uh, she felt like successful marriage. And, and uh, she just, just dressed to the hilt, designer clothes and, and, and all this kind of thing. And, and she's there and, and, just, and just coming across really frail. You can tell by her posture, her shoulders just kind of, she just looks beat down. And, and she said, well, um, my husband's very driven and he has been uh, working very hard. He, he's really, uh, as, as our marriage has gone along, he's, he's become more and more of a hard worker, kind of a, a workaholic and, and um, big. And his office culture was the office party. And showing up to the office party and sitting with the right people and talking to the right folks, making the right connections has been really, really important for him to, uh, to climb the corporate ladder. And she basically, what she said was that her husband had, came home, had come home and at, at some point, of course, I'm paraphrasing, he basically looked at her and said, 
you know what? I, I don't think you're the right woman to help me get up the corporate ladder because you don't look like the boss's wife. You don't, you're, you're, not, you're not put together as nicely as they are. You're, just, uh, you're, you're not what I need to get all the way to the top. And so he literally just cast her aside, just pushed her away in order to focus on his, himself, in order to focus on his goal of making a name for himself and getting all the way to the top no matter who was left in his wake. You know, there are some other key traits to help us identify when we're acting in selfishness. Some of these you might relate to selfishness. Some of them you might not. But as we examine our hearts this morning to see if there's something we need to pull out, if there's any weeds that need to be pulled in our lives on this journey of becoming fully devoted Christ followers, here's some things to identify. We've already talked about a a me-first mentality as a part of selfishness, but, but one of the traits of this is to be scheming and plotting in order to maintain our control over others. I mean, you know, some of us can joke about being control freaks and, and liking things a certain way and got, having to drink the Diet Coke in the first 10 minutes and having to have the coffee when it's at its hottest, but when you find yourself really trying to scheme and, and plot in order, to, in order to keep control over your own circumstances... Another thing that selfishness does is it causes us to, to hold on to our possessions really tightly. It causes us to, to hoard instead of looking for opportunities to be generous. Another trait of selfishness, and, and you may not have thought of it this way before, but is low self-esteem. When we're so focused on ourselves and our own lives and we begin to examine ourselves so much that we get really, really negative about it. Low self-esteem causes us to have a, a negative outlook, not just on ourselves, but on, on life in general. And it makes us poor teammates at home and at work and in the church. And selfishness can drain us of our own motivation and pull others down. Another kind of symptom of selfishness is, is, an, is an entitlement mentality where people feel like it is our, our birthright to maintain a certain lifestyle that we feel like we deserve, even to the extent of taking advantage of other people. So if we have any of these things in our lives, if we have any of these things going on, how do we counteract selfishness and insisting on our own way in order to demonstrate God's crazy love for others? How do we practice this love that denies itself and puts others first? Well, self-denial was a cornerstone of Jesus' instruction on what it meant to be a disciple. And, and three of the gospel writers caught one time when he said, or maybe he said it several times, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus speaks of self-denial as needing to happen every single day. It's, it's the mark of a disciple and really a moment-by-moment moment discipline that if we were all honest for just a moment, it's truly unnatural. I mean, it's very easy to slide into selfishness in so many different areas of our lives. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and follow me. Approaching one another with God's crazy selfless love is a key ingredient in all of our relationships and how we should treat each other. And it's definitely a necessary component of a healthy marriage. I want to read you from Ephesians chapter 5 here this morning. I want to start somewhere that... Not all pastors start at, just to be honest. Ephesians 5.21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I've done 40, 50 wedding ceremonies now. And before I do a ceremony, I always sit down with a couple and I always say to them, listen, I'm going to give 
Paul's instructions to the wives and to the husbands from Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to start with this verse. This verse is very important. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me tell you where a lot of people start. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit. That, normally that's where we sit down. We're done. That's good. Woman, submit. No. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now I'm not kidding. There was a denomination a few years ago that took a vote, because that's what they do. They took a vote to say that they stand by Ephesians 5.22. Nobody voted on verse 21. Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. It's very easy to start with woman submit and just sit down. That's a big hit in the South. All the guys love it. All the guys are a little uncomfortable right now because they're not sure where I'm going with this. This is, and you should be. But, I mean, honestly, this is what, this is what we get to so many times is that rather than this mutual submission that's supposed to take part in a healthy marriage relationship, what do we get? We get the guys that come home, kick off the shoes. They ask for their beverage of choice, Diet Coke, I assume, fresh out of the fridge, fizzy, or hot coffee, whatever, however strong your drink is that day, and ask the kids to maybe go away for a little bit. You know, give them, give them the nice greeting, and then, okay, scram. And whatever it is, and it's, it's this mentality where the guys say, you know what, it's all about me. I'm sure there isn't any guys in this room, but it's all about me. And right now, I just need everyone to get out of my way because I've been at work all day for this family. I have been providing for your needs. And now I just need a break. So if everyone could please just make it about me for just a little bit. We love this mentality. I mean, it's so easy to get into. Get into. It's not only natural for the guys, but it's natural for the gals. But the scriptures give us a different description of how we are supposed to act in healthy marriage relationships with each other. First of all, it says to the woman, you know what? You're supposed to submit to your husband just as the church is supposed to submit to Christ. But here's what I always tell the guys in the premarital. That means you're supposed to act like Jesus when you're with your wife. You're supposed to love her the way that Jesus did. How did he do that? Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, guys, I always say this to the groom, so I'll say it to you again. The weight of what happens in a marriage, by and large, the greatest weight is on the man. Jesus sets a pretty high standard for husbands. And to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church means that you are willing to sacrifice for her when given the opportunity. It means that you are supposed to suffer when given the opportunity. That means she gets the remote every once in a while. (laughs) Somebody just said, thank you, you're welcome. (laughs) Guys, if we're gonna love our wives, we have to get away... We more than any, anyone else, we have to get away from insisting on our own way and we have to put others first, including and especially our wives. But beyond marriage relationships, 
How, how else can we counteract this idea of insisting on our own way? How does this impact other relationships? Well, there are 59 one another commands in Scripture. I thought I'd read them to you. Here we go, 59. Number one, I'm only going to read 47. Romans 12, verse 10. Look at these. Here's just a few. Honor one another above yourselves. Matthew Henry says, those who are animated with a principle of true brotherly love will will in honor prefer one another. Romans 15 says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Let the scriptures just speak over your relationships this morning. Think about your friendships. Think about your marriage. Think about the people at work. Think about whoever it is that you are doing life with. And look at the scriptures and let them help you identify an area maybe you need to work on or or whatever it may be. Galatians chapter 5 says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Pastor Brian Beloy, he says, Life is like volleyball. As long as you're serving, you can't lose. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Colossians chapter 3 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. James 4. Brothers, do not slander one another. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. All of these things counteract insisting on having our own way and they put the focus on others. Look at them again. Honor one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Don't slander each other and consider how you might spur one another on. And Jesus himself gave us one in John chapter 13. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. This is the way that people are going to know whether or not you are following Jesus Christ. Talking about that last verse, loving one another, author Donald Miller tells the story of a Hindu woman who is referred to as a modern-day mother to all in that faith. It's interesting because she doesn't offer theological instruction. She doesn't give personal coaching or, or business advice. She just does what Hindus do, she just sits around and and chants to Krishna all day long. And she fills up like whole football stadiums doing this. She invites people to come to to her events and and you can sit on the front couple rows and you can pray to anybody you want to. You're not going to offend her, but she's going to be there and she's going to chant and literally fills up stadiums. Tens of thousands of people come watch this, this little ordinary woman just do her thing and just chant away and And it just makes everybody just feel happy. What else does she do? What is her secret ingredient? Why do so many people follow her? Well, here's the honest fact. Here's what she does. She's very tricky. She gives hugs. She's a professional hugger. As of 2010, her handlers had estimated that she had hugged over 30 million people. Now, I'm looking for the antibacterial wipes at this point. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm not that bad. But she just hugs. 
and people show up for free hugs. And about this phenomenon, listen to what author Donald Miller says. I think this is brilliant. He says, I want to make a little hypothetical wager here. I bet that somebody with unsound doctrine will gain a greater following if they are loving than somebody with sound doctrine who is unloving, bitter, or angry. Now the reverse is also true. That if somebody has sound doctrine and love, they will attract more people too. But the point is this. People will go to where they are loved and are repelled from that system that does not create love. You know, oddly enough, the greatest thing that keeps people away from Christ is Christians. I know it's kept some of you at bay for a long time, but hear me, Christ followers today. Let's be positive about this. The reverse is also true. The greatest thing that draws people to Christ are fully devoted followers of his who treat one another and others differently by how they love one another. Truly, as Jesus said, they will know us by our love. And if we can grab onto the elements of this crazy love, including a crazy love that denies itself and puts others first, ultimately, we will draw people to the Savior and ultimately save their lives. Approaching one another in relationships the way that God encourages us and demonstrating this crazy love that Scripture commands can bring tons of people who are far from God, no matter what's going on in their lives, demonstrating this kind of love can draw them right in. There's a story in Ernest Gordon's True Life account of a World War II Japanese prison camp in his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai. It's about a man named Angus, a Scottish prisoner in one of the camps. The camps were filled with Americans and Australians and and Brits who, who helped build that infamous bridge. And maybe you've seen a movie, Once Upon a Time, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. But let me tell you what was happening in this camp. This camp had become a really ugly situation. And all these people who were meant to be allies together had begun stealing from one another and had begun deceiving one another. And they had gotten into such a mode of survival that the camp had, was completely untrusting. They were actually sleeping on their belongings every night to make sure that, that no one would steal from them. Even though they, they could have been together in this, even the prisoners were all divided. Survival had become everything. The Scottish soldiers took a buddy system very seriously. And they all assigned themselves to friends to try to support one, one another in this environment. They called their friends muckers. And Angus, the Scottish soldier, his mucker, while he was in camp, was dying. Everyone else had given up on him, and soon Angus would be alone, except for the fact that Angus had not given up. He had made up his mind that his friend would not die. Someone stole his friend's blanket. So Angus gave him his own, telling him that he had just come across an extra one. Likewise, every mealtime, Angus would get his rations and he would give them to his friend and, and stand over him and, and make sure that he would eat them. And again, he would just tell him that, you know, don't worry about it. I just got some extra food. He was doing anything and everything he could to make sure that his buddy 
recovered. And he began to recover. He began to get healthy. He began to get well. And one day, Angus collapsed, slumped over, and died. They discovered that Angus had died of starvation, complicated by exhaustion. He had been giving of his own food and shelter to the one that had been assigned to him. He had, he had given everything he had. and Ultimately, he gave his very own life. And the ramifications of his acts of love and unselfishness had a tremendous impact on the rest of the prisoners in the compound. Listen to what happened. As word circulated of Angus's death, the feel of the camp began to change. Suddenly, men began to focus on their friends and, and humanity of, of living beyond survival, of, of, of giving oneself away. They, they began to, to pull their talents. One was a, a violin maker before he was a prisoner. One was an orchestra leader. One was a, a cabinet maker. Another was a professor. And soon this Japanese prison camp, there by the River Kwai, had a full orchestra full of homemade instruments. And they began to call this place a church. They called it a church without walls. It was so powerful. It was, it was so compelling that even the Japanese guards began to attend and have their lives transformed. The men there began a, a university a hospital, and a library system. The place was transformed and all but smothered love had been revived. All because one man had given his life for his friend. For many of those men, this turnaround meant more than friendship, but it meant survival. And what happened is an awesome illustration of the potential unleashed when one person person is actually unselfish and willing to give it all away. An even greater example than this is Jesus himself, who shows us that crazy love denies itself and puts others first. In Philippians chapter 2 says this, says this, it's the apostle Paul speaking again, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value yourself above others, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't use his status to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The Apostle Paul would go on to say that his nature, coming out of heaven down to earth, ultimately would take him, as we know, all the way to the cross for you and for me. Ultimately, Jesus shows us what it means to deny yourself and to put others first. Not to do the easy thing, not to do the natural thing, not to just sit back and be me-focused. It's so easy to do. We all have these moments. But when we can get to the point where we're daily denying ourselves, putting others first, ultimately, people will see Christ in us. They'll be drawn to him, 
and ultimately the unselfishness of a Christ follower is what can save lives. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Jesus modeled unselfishness for us better than anyone else. And if you're here today and you're a Christ follower, if you're trying to be a disciple of his, one who learns to live the way that Jesus did, would you just take a moment here, just in the quietness of your seat, and just ask God to let you know, is there any area of my life, God, is there any area where I'm being selfish? And just allow God to pull the weeds and tend the garden of your soul this morning. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father sent his one and only son in the ultimate act of unselfishness for you. And his son laid down his life so that you might have forgiveness of all of your sin and selfishness. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I would encourage you right now, right now in your seat in your own words, to say to him, God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you for his unselfishness. God, I pray, I accept what you've done for me. I pray that you would help me understand you more, to learn to trust you more. But God, today in faith, I'm believing that, you're, that the work that you did for my salvation is complete. And I accept that today. If you're here and you pray to trust Christ today, I wanna to encourage you at the end of our time together, if you would, before you leave, go out to the lobby, to our help center, and allow us to talk with you to, make, to help you get started right. We've got a gift for you there. We want to get you going on the right path, help you take your next steps. God, today we come before you with humble hearts as Jesus modeled for us to do. And Lord, I know that in my own life, it is so easy to lapse into moments of selfishness. And God, so I pray that for all of my brothers and sisters this morning, that you would help us. God, that you would pull the weeds out this morning. Lord, that we might walk in a way that is just crazy to the rest of the world, Lord, by denying ourselves and putting others first. God, help us to do it in such a way that it draws people to the Savior so that lives can be saved and lives can be changed. God, we need you desperately in order to practice this kind of love in our lives. It's not natural. It's not easy. But God, we give this to you today. Thank you for meeting us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen.